Okay, we are Parshas, we are Parshas Bahar, it's Chumash Vayikra, and it starts at chapter 25, okay? Now, very, very often, Bahar and Bechukotai, which is the next Torah portion, come together. And I've already given my whole issues, like why is it not coming together for us next week so that we can have the diaspora and Israel join together. And I'm not going to that again, but it is separate for us. Uh, it is separate. Now, um, we're not going to be doing Parshish B'chukosai together because next week is like, well, we're not going to have class. So that is the week that we do Chazak. And we have, this, I'm going to talk about it for like two seconds, just so that we have it part of, like we have, we have the closure of it, but we're not going to be, we're not going to really be going, we're not going into that partial. We're not going to learn it next week. Bahar and B'chukotai are very often together. This week, they are not. But next week, Thursday, we're not having class because of Lagbomer. So we're not going to do we're not going to do that tar, that parsha. But I, I want to talk about it for a second, but but in a second. So uh, can you just have class anyway? No, I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so so, but thank you for the thank you for the thought. Yeah. So um, so for so we are not joined parsha. Bahar and Bechukotai are not joined together. So we have a very short parsha to talk about. There's a lot of stuff going on. I want to mention briefly upcoming for next week. We discussed yesterday, so I'm not going into great detail, but Sunday is going to be Pesach Sheni, our second chance. Uh, time to, you know, an opportunity to reboot. So that's going to be on Sunday. And Wednesday night, Thursday is Lagba Omer. And it's, you know, I'm sure you've had a lot of conversations about Lagba Omer or have not had a lot of conversations about Lagba Omer, but in Israel, it's definitely the Pyromaniacs uh, holiday usually little people, pyromaniacs. There's lots of fires, bonfires going on. The celebration of the Yartzeit of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and the fact that his students stopped dying. Uh, there's a back, you know, the end, the back end conversation. Did they only not die on that day? Did they stop dying on that on that day? It's going to affect how we deal with the laws of mourning. But for Lagba Omer itself, there are no laws of mourning like we have for the at least this part of the Omer period and that some people continue even after Lagba Omer. So Lagba Omer, it's like, you're gonna see weddings going on and things on Lag Bomer. Because you yeah, yeah. Because there's no laws of mourning on Lag Bomer. I thought you can't mix one simcha with another simcha. It depends what what kind of simcha we're talking about. So you don't do like you wouldn't do you right. But those are different, those are like holiday kind of like sukkah. You, it's not a hug. It's a minor, it's a minor festival. And we don't say Tachanun, and we don't have any laws of mourning, but it's not like Shabbos or Chag or, you know, and you can make weddings on Hanukkah. And Purim, right? I guess, I, I'm not saying not, I'm trying to think, have I ever have I ever been to, it, it seems like a logistically not such a good idea. Like, if you want people to come to your wedding like slightly sober, but not to do it on Purim, but I don't think there's actually, I don't think there's actually any reason why you cannot do it, but because they're not biblical, they're not biblical um, holidays. Um, so that's going on next week, okay? So that's just like a little bit of a flavor of where we're going into next week. But here we are, we're up to Parshish Bahar. It's a very short Torah portion. Yay, that means we're gonna get to finish it. Okay, so chapter 25, um, or one more thing I wanna say before we start our Parsha. I do wanna, I wanna, Parshish Bechukotai, uh, the end of it has the rebuke 
that Hashem gives and Moshe gives to the Jewish people that says, if you don't, if you follow my statues, it's gonna, this is gonna be nice and wonderful. And if you don't, this is what's gonna happen. Um, and uh, <coughs> we always, we, we basically the Torah, we have those sections of the rebuke, it's called a Telfakah, twice a year, once before Shavuot when we receive the Torah and once before Rosh Hashanah when it's the start of our new year. We never have it, the Shabbos leading into Rosh Hashanah, leading into Rosh Hashanah or leading into Shavuot. We always wanna have the next parsha from Shabbat Midbar is gonna be right before. So what's gonna happen is that in the diaspora, Shavuos this year is Matzah Shabbos. It's Saturday night, Sunday, and then going into Monday in the diaspora, we only have one day Chag. So we're gonna have Shabbos Sunday. So in the diaspora, they're gonna read Parshas Bamidbar on that Shabbos. We're gonna read it the week before. So we're gonna read Nassau before. So because there's like this, this concept of like, it's not out with the old and in with the new, but sort of it, say, it says in, in the Gemara, like that we should finish the year with all its curses and start a new year with all its blessings. So twice a year, we kind of have that Anything that had to happen is over and done. And now we're starting like with a clean slate and everything's going to be amazing. and Everything's going to be wonderful. So Shavuos and Rosh Hashanah are those two times that we have it. So Parshbukotai is going to, that's next week. Also Bukotai is we're finishing the whole Chumash of Vayikra. So next week is a chance to kind of look back at our whole Chumash of Vayikra of, of our relationship with Hashem. And, and that, but that's, that's like a next week conversation. I don't really just want to just mention that because we're not going to be learning next week. So here we are, Parshas Bahar. It starts in chapter 25. It starts when it says that Hashem said to Moshe at Mount Sinai, saying, and the first couple of, there, there are, thematically, there aren't so many things going on in this Parsha. The first thing that we're going to talk about is the idea of a Shemitah year. We're going to come back to this. That's why we're not going to it right now. We have the idea of a Shemitah year. How do we start a Shemitah? How do we have Shemitah? Is over here. Um, and then we go into from verse eight, we talk about a Yovel, a Jubilee year, where you have seven cycles of a Shemitah year. And then just like, we're going we're to get back to, because, you know, I'm the Shemitah freak over here. I'm probably the only person who loves Shemitah. Um, so, so, um, so once every 50 years, essentially what happened was you had two Shemitahs, one after the other, because you had the seventh year of the seventh cycle, year 49 was a Shemitah year. And then year 50 <coughs> was the Jubilee year. And that was another, it's treated like another Shemitah year. So it was two consecutive years where you could not work your fields, blah, blah, blah. Now, Shemitah and Yovel uh, are, uh, are oh, I'm losing my, Shemitah and Yovel are both um, from the Torah. They're Doraisa. When, all, when the majority of the Jewish people live in the Holy Land. So the, the Yovel celebration, the Jubilee celebration, which we're going to discuss in a second, was, I mean, Jewish history, it's like only, it was only in effect for about 800 years. It was from when the Jews come into the land of Israel, almost towards the end of the first temple period. Once the, the you know, Reuben and God get taken away and the 10 tribes get taken away, Jubilee year is no longer in effect. It is no longer being counted um, in the cycles. Okay. Now today, our our observance of Shemitah is not derived it's Midirabanan, it's from the rabbis because we still are missing those tribes and da-da-da-da-da. We could argue whether the majority of the world, current world jury lives in Israel or not. And uh, you know, the sense sense, I don't know what's the plural of a census. Like censuses, censuses, sensei. I don't know. Sensei is the guy who teaches you how to like, you know, how to fight the sensei. 
but um or the woman but I don't know what the plural is but the, but they always like whenever they do a Jewish censuses whenever they count the Jewish people however you want to you know say somebody don't sound illiterate um there's always that oh how many Jews live in Israel how many Jews are in the diaspora da, da, da. you know oh we have more Jews. like the numbers are kind of are, are evening out or moving maybe having more Jews being in Israel but we still don't have the answer of the 10 lost tribes and where do they fit in so will is it now for now it's still a rabbinic uh it's, it's rabbinic but not 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 biblical but it's been happening for a much longer time I meaning we had it for the first almost 800 years at this because it starts when we're in the land of israel and we have to have the majority of the people here so that's yovel what happens in yovel every 50 years no we don't count we don't count yovel anymore we have since the towards the end of the first temple period. Jubilee, it's freedom. Why? I don't know. I have no idea. So Yovel, Yovel is the Jubilee year. And trick question for New Star: Where does the phrase "and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land" appear in the United States of America? It's in the Torah, huh? I'm asking you. Where does the phrase "and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land"? Not liberty and justice for all. That exact phrase. It's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's song. It is not in a song. Why is it question for me? It's on a Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Oh. <laughs> and that is a direct quote from our Pasuk. Okay. It has over here in uh it's in Pasuk. Um where is it? Of course, I didn't mark it. Okay, so it's chapter twenty-five, verse ten, and you should you should sanctify the fiftieth year. Or karatem dror ba'aretz, you should proclaim liberty throughout the throughout the land for all its inhabitants. It's a jubilee year, and everybody goes back to their ancestral lands. So, in a biblically uh, mandated jubilee year, all land went back to the original owners. Okay, so essentially. Land in the land of Israel was never sold outright. And Torah is going to discuss this in the next bunch of Sukkim. It was always a lease until the Jubilee year. Because in Jubilee, in the 50th year, it was going back. All Jewish slaves were returned. They were, they were freed in the 50th year. Like everybody, it was like mamish or restart button. Everything goes back to the original. So the sages were afraid that nobody was going to want to, like, how do you figure out how do I buy something? How do I... If I buy land, if I buy a house, it's going to go back in the 50th year to the original owners. And so that's why all the, all the prices are prorated towards Jubilee. That means if I'm now in year 30, then I can have this field for 20 years. So my price for the field is only for 20 years worth of crops because in 50, year 50, it's going back to the original owner. If it's year, if I if we're in year two or three of the the fifty year cycle, and I have that much more time, so the, the land or the house is worth more. Okay, um, and so yeah, so that that phrase "ukratim dorbaaretz" is on the Liberty Bell, um, because that was one of the tenets that the that the United States was built on that it should be uh, just a slight, not editorializing, but a stom comment that. Um, America was founded on the principle that there should be freedom of religion, that any, everybody should be able to worship in whatever way they wanted to, not that there should be freedom from religion, that you know God should not be part of the conversation any place, 
There just shouldn't be a mandated, this is the state religion and therefore everybody has to go along with that. So it's interesting, like on an official thing, I don't, you know, that's where we have it. Anyway, so that was, that was Yoma, that's the Jubilee year. And then we go into, you sell yourself as a slave. Um, and the Torah is going to ask, why would somebody sell themselves as a slave if they were very poor? Or if they, essentially the two reasons people would sell themselves as slaves are either A, they were very poor and couldn't feed themselves or their family, or B, they stole and they couldn't pay back what they, what they, had, to, what they had to pay back. Because in Jewish law, if you steal, you, you, don't, just, you don't get sent to prison, you, get, you have to pay back what you stole plus a fifth. So if you don't have it, you have to, you know, one of the ways to get it back is to work for it. And it talks about um, verse 17 is Lotono Ishadrad Mito. You should not, uh, how, does that, how does that, verse 17, how is that translated? Not to uh, torment or aggrieve, 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 right? That's like in Yiddish, we would say mucha, like don't bother the other person, like don't. So part of it here, Rashi talks about that it's, um, how you speak to other people that um, you shouldn't uh, you shouldn't give him bad advice. So it's a, it's a word thing, not so much a um, you know it's not it's not a it's not a financial thing. There's there's parenthetically there's a side thing of a, a mitzvah or a prohibition of onaa, which is um, overcharging somebody for something. And according to halacha, you're not allowed to overcharge. I think like you can over like maybe 20%, I don't know exactly what, like there's a, a percentage of how much you're allowed to like, if this is like, where's your profit margin? So whatever, I don't know what, how, how one counts that in a day we're above the actual cost of the item, you know, and, you know, do we say, oh, it's market value, I can't charge more the market value because we all know that the market value let's say for clothing is way higher it's a conversation but here we're talking about specifically how you talk to people and not to give them bad advice and not to lead them astray uh verbally okay okay and then it's a, and here's a very interesting thing so chapter 25 verse 20 right so first of all 19 says that the land will give its will give its fruit and you'll eat for plenty and you'll sit in in um Lavetta. And security and everything and it says and if we should say because we're still talking about the laws of Shemitah and Yovel so like for Shemitah it's every seven years but once you hit a Yovel you're going to end up having two years that we got to like figure this situation out um, so the question the Torah says is and if we say what will we eat in the seventh the seventh year? We haven't planted and we haven't sowed. We have sowed. We haven't broadened our our thing. So Hashem says that I uh, I will give my blessing on the sixth year, six year produce, and it's going to be enough for three years. What's the count of six years? Of sorry, three years, because whatever you planted in the sixth year has to be enough for you for the sixth year, for the seventh year where you're not planting. And in the eighth year until something's going to grow, because it takes time for stuff to grow. Okay. Uh, and then when you have a jubilee year, you end up having the bracha for 40 years. Because you're going to have your 48th year. You'd have 49th year, which is your year of Shemitah. Then your 50th year, which is your jubilee. 
and then your year one, which is your start again, until things grow. Um, you know, I'm gonna, I want to stop for a second. I want to talk about this. Shemitah is probably like the last massive test. I mean, I'm going to simplify the situation, right? That, that we could have to say, how much do I trust God? How much do I trust? Hashem's like, don't work the land. And the question that we, well, one of the reasons that I love Shemitah is because I'm not a farmer, right? I don't deal with this on a practical basis. It's not like I'm going to lose all my contacts and my business. And I'm not like, I don't have that issue. So I can just look at the state of Israel where I have an opportunity to eat, you know, fruits and vegetables that are holy and how do you deal with it and mindfulness and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, that's why I love Shemitah because I think it's like, where else does your banana, eating your banana become like a holy uh, situation? You know, we had, we had our, the banana, the bananas we got in Pesach were all Kedusha Shviyas, which we'll talk about in a second. And then we had some ones that were, eh, so I said, okay, we'll freeze. And then Rachel was like, what are we going to do? We're going to do shit. We're going to make shakes with these bananas. Then we're going to have to drink every little bit of the shake. What are we going to do? Because it's holy and you have to use it all. It's mindfulness. It's not a bad thing, but I'm not a farmer, right? And the place of, of once upon a time, a farm would say, I am not going to plant. I remember this is really for vegetables because fruit grow. And once your fruit tree starts giving fruit, you got fruit. You don't have to plant it every single year. But for vegetables, if you don't plant them, they're annuals. If you don't plant them, you're not going to have a wheat crop. You're not going to have cucumbers. You're not going to have tomatoes. Maybe they didn't have them. I don't know. But, but they like, you wouldn't have anything if you don't plant it. So to say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to rely on God. I'm going to say, I trust you that you will take care of the people aren't in the, and the sages talk about when they say when they say, what are we going to eat? They're not coming with an accusation. We're going to die. Oh my gosh, we're going to die. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, huh, this is an interesting proposition. What are we going to eat? How is this going to actually work? Not will it work? They're not saying, will there be food? They're saying, what will we eat? We know you're going to feed us. You know, we know you're not going to let us starve. So how is that actually going to work? You know, it's a very interesting, like it's kind of coming as a place of how is, how is this miracle going to work itself out? Right. Um, and the sage is also, you know, they, they kind of link it in, in the measures they talk about it, that, uh, that the Torah was only able to be given to the generation that ate the mana, right? It was only given to the people who ate the mana. And what do we know about the mana, to, to, to segue for a second? You got it every single day. You couldn't, you couldn't store it. You couldn't hold on to it. You couldn't leave it in your cupboard. It would go bad. And you had to trust every single day that it was going to come. And it didn't matter that you got it for the last three years, every single morning you had the mana. Because probably, possibly it's going to come. But there is a certain amount of trust that comes up when you don't have anything in your house. You know, I don't know if I, if I, if I share this with you ever, but you know, my, my husband is a children of, is a, is a child of survivors. You could not say in his house, there's nothing to eat in the house. His father was not interested in such a, in such a conversation. There's no food that you like. There's no food that's ready to eat. Now don't say there's no food in the house. Like survivors knew what it meant. There's no food to eat. It wasn't, oh, I don't like the kind of cereal that we have. I have to cook the pasta. Like, that's not no food. No food is no food, right? And the people in the desert went to sleep. There was no food in the house. There was no food in the house. And they went to sleep. 
totally trusting Hashem that in the morning they were going to have what to eat. And the people who, who, who went who followed Shemitah, Hashem counted it that same level of trust, that same level of amuna that they are going to trust, that Hashem is going to take care of them, and that it's going to be okay, and they're going to have what to eat. So, you know, it's very interesting, because, like, you think of, like, the old, old stories, you know, once upon a time stories, like, and you think, like, wow, those people were amazing. But there's actually, I mean, there's a movement that's happening in Israel in the last bunch of Shemitahs that were here. I've been in Israel now for, this is my fifth Shemitah in Israel. Um, and I've seen a lot of change from the consumer end of the, of the situation. And one of the things that's growing more and more is really like encouraging farmers to follow Shemitah, like to not work the land, to really take the space and the time to, yes, to let the land lie fallow and also to like have time to sit and be with your family and all this kind of stuff, like and to, to do other things, not just very labor intensive uh, agricultural work. Um, so, uh, 2014 was a Shemitah year, and there was a couple in the South, and um, she kind of was interested in, in them keeping Shemitah more like properly, like not, right now, a lot of the farmers do Hetemachira, they sell the land and they continue to work it. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good option, it's not without its issues, um, and there are people who, you know, it's, it's a whole conversation, which I don't want to get into right now. But what's interesting is that in 2014, this woman decided that she really wanted to, to try to have this, to try to keep Shemitah with not working the land. And, um, and, uh, and she was talking to her husband about it. And he said, oh, maybe we'll do, they had some greenhouses and they had some open fields. And I thought maybe they do it on part of it and some the other. And um, so her name is, the eg i don't know how to pronounce her last name and and then they so they had they were different there were like different organizations that want to help the farmers financially so that they could do this because it's a massive loss so uh so in 2014 he was kind of half on board she was really game for this he was more half on board and but the, when they were speaking to the different organizations they were like we're only going to help with the finances if you really keep this like the whole shebang so this was after Rosh Hashanah of the Shemitah had already started. And um, he grows eggplants for, he's like one of the big suppliers for, I think for Strauss or something like he was a, a, big, a big supplier. Okay. So he's, he can't grow the eggplants like he can't. So he's, he, he agrees, he goes on board with this. And so the rabbis are like, okay, we'll just turn off the water and the plants will die. And he's kind of like, he's a farmer. He knows like, it's not necessarily going to be so simple. Um, he says eggplants are very, very strong plants and they talk and they turn off the water. And two weeks, they're not watering, three weeks, they're not watering the plants and the plants are growing like crazy. They're like, it's like, it's such a test for him. It's such an Isaiah because he's like, it's a gorgeous crop. It's going to be a gorgeous crop, but he's committed to doing this. And so they actually had to poison the plants in order to, in order to like, because he couldn't use the crops, because he had planted it after Rosh Hashanah. And somehow their story ended up, people heard their story and people started coming to them for brachas and their brachas were coming true because like somebody came to them now again this year, the beginning of the year that Rav Kanievsky 
told them, if you want to get a bracha, it's going to work, go to a farmer who keeps Shemitah properly because that's real amuna. And, 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 you know, they had a, they had a, a like a thing recently, um, I think in the beginning of this year, like in Binyan Ehoma and, um, and, uh, and, and, and Silana, it was a woman's event and she came and she was speaking there. And when they were there, they brought two women came to the stage who had children nine months after she gave them a bracha. So it's very, you know, it's, this is like a modern story. This is, you could literally Google them. Doron and Ilana, T-O-W-E-G, I don't know how to pronounce that name, right? You could really Google the story and you could see these are real people with real, real challenges, but also having such an amazing bracha from their, from their, from their, their behavior, which is like such, I don't know, for me, it's very, very inspiring. And I don't presume to be able to judge how hard or easy it is for anybody to keep Shemitah. I, I am sure it is quite, quite, quite the challenge. He's like, when he told Strauss that he wasn't growing eggplants for them for that year, they were like not impressed, you know, and they went to find other suppliers and they didn't, he didn't just come back the next year and say, Hey, I'm here, I'm bored. And, you know, like he had to rebuild his whole situation. Now we've got another Shemitah, like it's not easy, you know, and nobody's doing it. So now we have the power season. Nobody's doing this. And now we have the power to give brachas, but it's like, whoa, to be able to see somebody who in today, you know, in 2022 has such a mysterious nefesh for a mitzvah of the Torah is like quite amazing. And it's quite special. And that's, so that's really Shemitah. Um, uh, you know, it's and it just um, like, you know, it talks about the beginning. It says that Hashem says these, Hashem said, spoke this to Moshe at Har Sinai. And Rashi says, like, what's the connection between Sinai and Shemitah? Like, where does that, you know, if you want to hear like the yeshivish language, the, so this Ma'inin Shemitah Eitzel Har Sinai is what Rashi says. It's like, a, if you want to, like, it's like a yeshivish expression to like, what does that have to do with anything, right? So like, that what does Shemitah have to do with Har Sinai? How does that connect at all? How does that make sense at all? Um, uh, so Rashi says, because it, it shows us that just like these mitzvahs were given at Sinai with all its details, so all the mitzvahs were given at Sinai with details. But still, it's not really the answer to the question. And it's first and talk about the idea that was small, that was humble, and that's why Torah was given on Sinai. That's how Shemitah gives us humility. Keeping Shemitah how, to the best of how we're not farmers, but it, it really is, a, it's coming from a place of humility. Of like we have to be able to say, we don't have all the pieces. We don't run the whole game. God is in charge. And if this is what Hashem wants us to do, a place of humility is such a massive, massive thing. Now, most of us here, we're not farmers. You know, I'm like having my little stresses about my, am I allowed to weed my flowers? And this is not, this is not big deal stresses. It's like, you know what I mean? This is not a, a multi, multi-million dollar business or a, a massive business with lots of profits and lots of people relying on me. But I think like that place of, you know, we are living in Eretz Yisrael in a Shemitah year. And to be able to tap into that place of, Shem's in charge. Like it's, it's true of our life in every area, even if we're not farmers. So we have the ability here to like tap into that space and say, okay, I'm going to do my part. And we don't get to just sit back and say, well, God, if you want me to eat, then like just 
put some food on my table. That's not the answer. We have to have six years of planting and sowing and doing whatever it is that we need to do. And then in the seventh year, it's going to be a Shemitah year. We don't just say, you know, God, if you really wanted me to have food. And, and then the question that we need to ask ourselves is, where is that balance between making an effort and relying on Hashem? Because we could say, one could arguably argue, I don't know if we say that, but you, one could argue and say, Hashem wants me to have it, he will give it to me, right? He wants me to be healthy, he'll give me health. He wants me to have money, he'll give me money. And there's another place, it's like, I need to do this and I have to like go to work and I have to go to the doctors, I have to, I have to, I have to. Have to. Okay, wait a second, you're both right. You're both right. We need to have our effort. We need to do our our six years of work, whatever it is in our lives. And at the end of the day, we need to be able to say, but Hashem's in charge. And I'm going to show that he's in charge by stepping back and saying, I did my part. If my job needs me to be there from nine to five, I'm going to be there from nine to five. I don't need to be there from nine to nine because I also have a family and I also have a life and I have Torah learning. I have all these other things. Every single job has different amounts of time that you actually need to put into it in order to be successful at your job. So you can't just say, whatever, I'll give, you know, I'll give like 40 minutes a day to earning a living and, and it should just work. Like, I mean, I guess it depends what your job is. I don't know. It doesn't seem quite feasible to me, but I don't know. But at the same time, we hear people who are working, you know, 19 hour days and we're like, whoa, where's your life? Like, you can't only be about your job. Like, where's your Where's your balance? And that I think is something that being in Israel in a Shemitah year is something that we can tap into. Like, yes, we have it on Shabbos on a, on a daily basis, but here we're living in a place where it's like for the year, you have more and more farmers who are saying, I'm stepping back. I'm letting Hashem be the boss here because that's what he wants. And that's what he asked of me. And so for us to be able to tap into that energy of, I got to do my part. I got to be honest and I got to do my thing as much as I can. But I also need to know that at the end of the day, Hashem is in charge and I'm going to let him have a space to, to do what he wants to do for me because that's what I need to do. I need to do my part and I need to understand that I'm not actually in charge. I'm not in charge. And, and to be able to step back and to be able to say it, it, it's hard. It's a really low pursuit. Low pursuit. That's, that's my my rant for my sweet rant for today um, um okay so then we talked about the then we talked about here that the land of in the jubilee year the year goes back the land goes back i'm just kind of catching up where we're at the end of this third aliyah over here that um that the land is not sold for in perpetuity because the land belongs to me because you are sojourners and and uh I don't know. Somebody give me an exact translation. Verse 23. What? Residents and what do they say? Sojourners and residents, right? Atem imadi, that you are with me. And so there's some really beautiful, like, nakshat kind of stuff over here. But like Hashem says to the Jewish people that geirin are, are, we don't belong. Right? You're foreigners. You're, you're, you're not so... Not so part of the part of the system, but Toshav is like, I live here, I belong here. And Hashem says, no matter where you go, whether you live in the land of Israel and you're a Toshav and you're there and you're present, or you're Gayrim, or you go into or you go into exile and you live someplace where you're not 
the majority and where it's not your land and it's not your space, I'm with you. You're with me wherever you go. You're, we're going with Hashem, which I think is like such a, such an important thing to remember. Like we often have our plan A and this is what we think is going to happen. And sometimes that isn't exactly how it works out. We thought this is what it was going to look like. And Hashem's like, it doesn't matter where you end up. You will always be with me, whether we're here, whether we're there, wherever it is that we settle and we, do, we build our lives and do our things, Hashem is with us, which is, you know, it's, it's interesting, Stam, this is like, Nachmanides, Ramban, has the, uh, is of the belief that the mitzvahs that we do out of Eretz Yisrael are really only for education, so that we don't forget that they're all kind of practice, and only mitzvahs that are done in Eretz Yisrael are like the real thing. But this is a different, a different way of looking at wherever, wherever we are and wherever we go, Hashem is with us and we have a mission and he's, you know, the, 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 the Medrash talks about that God goes into exile with us. And some of the Mepharshim talk about here, this is kind of a proof that Hashem is with us, even if we go into, even if we go into exile. Um, okay, then Ravi, what happens if a person get, is poor and, uh, and people, and uh, people is poor and he sells himself or he sells from part of his property. So the, so a relative who's close to him should come and help him. And chap, and verse, so chapter 25, verse 26. So each a person who doesn't have any redeemer. Okay. So he himself can also try to redeem himself or redeem his property. So Rashi says, and we know Rashi's talking to, to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Shati's, you know, they talk about the Rashi's for Ben Chamesh Lamikra for a five-year-old who's starting to learn Torah. Rashi says, how is it possible that there is somebody who doesn't have v'ish ki lo yelogal? You don't have anybody who could redeem him. So Rashi says over here, um, uh, so Rashi says here that is it possible that there's somebody who doesn't have anybody who could help him if he has no redeemers? So it's talking about somebody who is in a position to be able to help them. Okay. So, so, you know, I, I was, I was, I was, I was, you know, when I was preparing, so one of the person was talking about the idea that a, a five-year-old growing up in a, in a Jewish environment, he reads the Torah and says that you don't have anybody to help you understands that that isn't you don't have anybody but the people don't have to be able to help you not that they if they wanted to if if they could they would help you it's not like oh they don't want to help you but he the five-year-old's like i i look around my neighborhood i see what happens i see the chesed i see what i see all the giving that people do in this neighborhood it's not possible that you don't have anybody who wants to help you you might not have people who are in the position to help you, and that's a different conversation. You're looking confused. I'm just a little bit confused. Is, is this is what Rashi says? No, Ra- so Rashi says, yeah, Rashi says, is there a person who doesn't have any redeemers? How's it possible? You don't have anybody? You don't have a, a, a relative someplace? How could there be somebody? That- so Rashi says, somebody questions, what's the question to the five-year-old? What's the five-year-old's question? He doesn't see. It doesn't seem like Rashi added so much, but he's. But in in where I was, you know, where I was preparing, he was saying like, not that that it's not that they he doesn't have anybody, but probably they can't help him. 
not that he's alone in the world. You know, unfortunately, one of the things that we see in the Jewish community, and I think it's one of the, the good things about technology, is like when we hear about a problem in any place, it's like everybody's here to help out. You know, the reason you know, you know I, I find that we do is very easily for unfortunate bad things, a family or a community where tragedy strikes or where something happens or people will open their hearts and their pockets and, and, and try to help as much as they can. So this five-year-old who's like saying, how could there be somebody? Oh, they probably can't. Not that they don't exist, but they don't have help because it doesn't make sense that there's nobody who wants to help. You might have somebody who can't help. So that's, that's kind of what they were talking about. And it was like, when I was, when I was learning it, I was thinking like, it's so, so true. We see it so many times of like, somebody says, here's an initiative that can help other people. And, you know, lots of people are on board to, to try to help even, you know, going back to like, going back to our farmers for a second, you know, at the beginning, like in before the Shemitah year, there was like this whole push in different religious communities, like you'll adopt a farmer, you know, we can't, we're not farmers. We can't do, but we could help them do this mitzvah. So we should like the people, they were collecting lots and lots and lots of money to be able to help the farmers. When it's interesting, I was, when I was, I was doing some research on it, they don't actually pay them for the loss of their crop, but they will pay them for other costs surrounding it. Rentals, uh, you know, rent, uh, the, the machinery, like all different kinds of stuff. They're not actually paying them for the crops, but they're paying them. So they're able to, to, to sustain and, and and one of the things that Ilana was saying, sound like just forgot, she's like, you know, what helps you figure out your priorities? Like, you don't have as much money as you wanted to, you had the year before and the year before the year before. So you have to say to yourself, what do I want to do with this? Like, my, my time resources and also my financial resources. It says, um, chapter and verse, give me. Uh, 27. Right after that. Okay. Then he shall reckon the years of his sale and return the remains to the man whom he has sold it, and he, and he, he shall return to his ancestral rent. Right. Okay. I, I guess I read the wrong, but the land goes back to whoever owned it first. Okay. So there's two ways that the land, there's two ways, there's two ways the land goes back. Either it goes back, either it goes back during Yeovil, or if I sold you part of my field because I didn't have enough money. I can buy back my field and it's it's prorated towards Yovel because Yovel I'm getting back anyway. What if I don't want to wait 25 years to get my field back? I, I, what, I needed to sell part of my land because I didn't have enough money. Okay, but now I do have enough money and I can buy it back. And you have to actually buy the whole thing. You can't just buy like pieces of it. So you could, the person could in fact buy it back themselves. But that wasn't your question. Um, no. okay. When Mashiach comes, yes. he's probably going to have the Yovel here again. Right. How are we really going to know whose land it was in the beginning? Because everything's kind of so random now. Right. People own random pieces of land. It's not right. technically theirs ever because the government owns the land. Well, so first of all, in Israel, the government owns all the land. You know that. You don't actually own You don't own your, you don't land. Own your land. The government always owns the land here in Israel, which I think is probably somehow tied to this what's going to happen when Moshiach comes I'm going to wait and find out because because um first of all we have so many more people how does this practically going to work I, I don't know is Moshiach going to have to come up with some solution absolutely you know Israel into agricultural I, I don't know like I don't really know what it means practically speaking and like if all of our family is supposed to live in like the space, I, I don't know. 
I don't know, but it's like, add that to the list of things we're going to check out when he comes. Okay. Um, and then we have idea of, and we have idea of selling a house. So Torah saying, if you don't keep Shemitah, there's this, there's a progression going on in our Chumash, in our Parsha. They're selling part of your selling your land. Sorry, selling part of your land, selling your house, selling yourself. And Torah was like, that's like a slippery slope. One leads to the other. If you don't keep Shemitah, then this da, 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 da. it's like a, it's a whole thing. And we have the whole situation of that. What happens if you sell your land? What happens if you sell your house? Interesting thing over here is that there's a difference if you sell a house in a excuse me, if you sell a house in a walled city. Or you sell your house in an out, not a, a what's the opposite? A not walled city. Is there a better word for that? There's a walled city and there's a unwalled city, right? An unwalled city. So if you buy a house in an unwalled city, the person has what no. If you buy a house in a walled city, the person has one year to buy back his house. And if he does not, or she does not then you lose it forever. It does not go back. A house in a walled city does not go back in a jubilee year. Okay? So that's that's just one of the interesting details over here, a difference. Um, and then... Um, okay, we're having this. Selling the people. Then it has laws of what happens if you... Oh, it goes... It flips on the other side. It talks about a person selling themselves if they're so poor. And then it flips and it says... How must we treat a Jewish slave? It's in chapter 25, verse 42, 41, 42, 43. All this, uh, um, we have all different kinds of laws over here. So first of all, it's very interesting. The Gemara says about uh, buying a Jewish slave, Misha Kana Evid Kana that if you buy a slave, you bought a master for yourself. And the Gemara tells us that if a person has, if person has only one pillow that goes to his Jewish slave. You're not allowed to give them busy work. You're not allowed to give them demeaning work. They're not allowed to carry your clothes when you go to the bathhouse. Then you can't tell them just start digging a hole that you actually have no purpose for. It's kind of very complicated. And you also need to support their family because the reason they sold themselves into slavery is because they have no, they have no food. And they don't have food. They don't have food for their family either. So you have to support their family. Um, so that's what's going on. So we have laws for slate for dealing with uh, for, for how do we deal with the Jewish slave. And it then talks about the idea of um, what happens if somebody sells themselves to a non-Jewish, as a slave to a non-Jewish uh, um, person and the, and the obligation to try to redeem them over there. So that's kind of, that's where the was going over here. And then there's something else going on over here. Okay. And the end of the Parsha does... It starts, they, they, it's yeah, chapter 26. It's kind of like we've, we had all this slew of laws concerning Shemitah and Yovel and what happens if you don't and something like that. And then here it says, do not make for yourself uh, any idols, um, stones. Don't, put, don't, don't make uh, uh, places of idol worship in your, in your, in your, in my, in my, in my land. Um, and it finishes off to keep my Shabbos and to keep my, uh, my, my sanctuary holy. I'm the Lord, your God, which is kind of like, um, huh. <laughs> I was going to say random, but it's fair. So again, totally be random. Right. Um, so, so, uh, so that's, that's an interesting conversation. Where does it, 
you know, I, I don't know. I don't have enough. I don't have enough to to speak intelligently about you. I just think it's an interesting thing. Of this is my, my this is my thoughts. You don't have to. Um, that if the whole point of shemitah and the the negative follow through of you know if you don't then you have to say you're reporting to tell you is all to show us about having a muna and believe and, and having faith in Hashem, then. I guess the flip would be when we substitute it. We, and that's what idol worship is. Idol worship is substituting power for something or someone other than Hashem. Um, and I think, I think that we have that issue today. We don't, uh, we don't bow down to, in most of the countries that we come from, we don't bow down to, statues of gold, silver, wood, stone, or any of those kind of things. That's not actually what we do. We do not create idols in the biblical sense of the word. But I feel like there are lots of things in our lives that we idolize and that we give a lot of importance to. And uh, maybe it's, huh? There's no limit to, you know, our phones and different random people and certain jobs and all different, I mean, food, you know, somebody's like, you know, you have, you have a device in your hand that could give you all the knowledge in the world and you're using it to take pictures of cats and food. You know, <laughs> um, uh, you could learn anything. You could have, you could access anything and that's what we're doing with it. But, um, but I think like that, that the, um, the prohibition against idolizing or creating or bringing it into your space is something that is very relevant to us. And I think it, it behooves us. It behooves. Um, to think about it and to say, wait a second. Okay. So I'm not, how, how if, if Shemitah is my proof of faith in Hashem. Okay. So then what am I, where else am I putting my faith and, and, and does it deserve my faith? Or am I idolizing something that isn't worthy of being idolized? And and I think it's like a I think it, it I think it's a it's a it's a meditation for ourselves. It's not like it's not necessarily a group conversation. You know, we could all we could all throw the phones, you know, like <laughs> throw them under the bus and say, oh, everybody get ready. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that, but I, I think like in and also. <clears throat> I think that to say, oh, we shouldn't have our phones is like a very, very big sweeping statement that I don't know that I'm prepared to, <laughs> I'm, not good. I'm not so willing to get behind that one, um, shall we say. But I, I think that there are things in our lives that if we're honest with ourselves, it might be some of our phone usage, it might be other things in our life that we need to think for ourselves and say, Where, where are my values? Am I, am I, am I lining in what I say that I believe in? How is that, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Like, where is that actually happening? And, and not to say we're going to now throw all our phones into the garbage, but how are we going to control, perhaps control our phone use or different things that we're, we've turned into like idols for ourselves and say, oh my gosh, that is my ultimate goal. And if I could be, 
an Instagram influencer, then I would die happy. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's really what we want to be saying. And that's what we really want these things. Cause that's part of, I think part of what we do when we learn is that we need to, we need to think about these things. We need to think about where we are and how we're doing and how we're not just, not just the knowledge that we're getting, but how we're growing as people and as, you know, how is my service of Hashem growing, not just my knowledge base. So I want to put, I want to make a, make a little plug for that. So that's what I have to share. I want to give us all a bracha. And it's really, it's really tied to, I guess it's going to be tied to Shemitah because like I said, I'm probably the last person who's just so happy and I'm so excited when Shemitah comes. Shemitah's so cool though. It is very cool. It's, I, yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great that you're so into it. Again, it's easy for me to be into it because I'm not a farmer. Like to, I don't have the challenge to say like, I'm going to lose like a major contract by keeping Shemitah. So I could just say, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Please God, next week, I'm going to go with my mother-in-law. We're going to get, you know, holy fruits and vegetables. And I'm like, I'm super excited about it. Right. Um, uh, but I want to give us a bracha and the place of Shemitah is twofold. Okay. It's kind of like Shabbos, but, but even more so. First of all, there has to be our six years of work. We have to say to ourselves in my Avedis Hashem, in my work as a human being, I'm working on myself, all of those spaces, or pick one space, don't pick all the spaces. Um, am I actually doing the work that I need to be doing? Let's be honest with ourselves, not with anybody else. We don't have to give accounting to anybody else, but we could be honest with ourselves and say, am I being an honest laborer in my Avedis Hashem? Am I really doing what I need to be doing? And then do I know when to let go and let God take, take charge? Because those are the two such vital parts of the conversation. A, we have to do our part. We have to be, you know, not just like, eh, I'll kind of like do a little bit. But A, I want to give us a bracha that we take, we think about one thing and we say to ourselves, am I working the best that I can for this? And am I stepping back and letting Hashem uh, take the lead for the rest of it because I think that's that's really what we learned from Shemitah. I'm not going to, and if we don't, that's not the question. We're looking we're looking now positive. How do we build positive? How do we build positive behavior? Positive meters? How do I move? Do what I need to do, and understand it's only a vessel for Hashem to pour the the brachas into. So that's my bracha to us for this week. We're going okay. into going to Pesach Sheni. It's a chance for us to look at it again and we, you know, fix it again. And really, 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 we should just be so successful <laughs> in the honesty and the courage that we need in order to, to step into this place. Have an awesome rest of the week.